welcome to another episode of the National Kidney Foundation's Life as a Nephrologist podcast. I'm your host, Natasha Dave, a nephrologist and regional medical director of Strive Health. For today's episode, we're chatting about the 2022 NKF Kidoki or Kidney Disease Outcomes Quality Initiative Commentary on the KDGO or the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcome Guideline for Glomerular Disease. The KDGO Guideline for Management of Glomerular Disease was published in October of 2021, the issue of Supplements to Kidney International, with an executive summary in the main pages of the journal. The guideline is the most extensive in KDGO history and is organized into 11 chapters, 10 of which cover a specific primary or secondary glomerular disease or group of diseases. The Kidoki commentary provides discussion on issues that are specific for the implementation of the KDGO guidelines in U.S. healthcare settings, and that is the topic for our discussion today. Today, I'm joined by two co-chairs of the Kidoki commentary, Dr. Bill Whittier from Rush University Medical Center in Chicago and Dr. Lawrence Beck from Boston Medical Center. Gentlemen, thank you guys so much for joining us. All right, folks, so get ready for a crash course in glomerular nephritis. We've got a ton to cover today, so let's get started. The commentary started with practical points for the management of glomerular diseases, so I'd like to start our discussion today with talking about proteinuria. You know, it was mentioned that urine protein creatinine ratios are adequate for monitoring treatment in an individual, and while 24-hour urine collections are often utilized, in the commentary, you state that the errors for measurement with urine protein to creatinine ratios do not matter if you're following a single patient trend over time, and forcing a patient to do a 24-hour urine collection can add to their burden and may not be worth the trouble. So, Bill, can you expand on this a little bit more? Yeah. Uh, first, thanks for having us. This is uh, Bill Whittier, and um, I'm happy to be here. Thanks to NKF and thanks, Natasha, for arranging this. When we were setting up to do this commentary, it was really to give a practical uh, approach to glomerular disease guidelines and you know, comment on what KDGO had done. And KDGO leaned in heavy into using a 24-hour urine collection for evaluation of proteinuria changes over time. And that, those 24-hour urine collections are very good if you're in studies. Because if, you know, you're going to compare my proteinuria to Larry's proteinuria, a PC ratio may not be that great. But if you're going to compare our proteinurias, then, you know, we might need the 24-hour urine collection because our creatinine excretion may be different. But someone's individual creatinine excretion doesn't change that much over time as long as they're in steady state. And using someone's own protein-creatinine ratio, comparing it to themselves, is actually quite accurate to determine changes in proteinuria. Now, not little changes, but big changes... And that, coupled with trends in serum albumin over time, are really good enough to show a worsening or an improved uh, disease process. So if you have somebody that's got, you know, eight grams, and then their next PC three months later is six, and then it goes to four, and then it goes to two, and their albumin goes from 1.7 all the way to 3.8, you, can, you don't need to do a 24-hour urine collection to tell the patient that they're in remission and they're doing or they're in partial remission and they're doing better. So, so just practically urine PCs are um, much, much more reliable and readily available for the individual private practice or academic physician uh, practicing who's not putting patients in studies. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty great insights there. Let's move on to creatinine-based equations. You mentioned that these equations can overestimate GFR in the setting of low albumin levels. 
Would you recommend using a cystatin C-based equation uh, in a person with nephrotic syndrome and say low albumin levels? I think that's a good idea um, because cystatin C, whenever you're worried about a muscle mass-based situation, is a good test to use. However, they haven't been validated necessarily in GNs, and there's several things that I think we often forget the cystatin C may be affected by. Chronic inflammation, uh, certain cancers can affect cystatin C, and, and most importantly, steroids have been shown to increase production of cystatin C in a lot of our patients that we're treating with inflammatory glomerular diseases are on steroids. So that's something to remember. Well, let's move on to another topic. Let's talk about urine sediment. Now the KDGO guidelines recommends that routine analysis of urine sediment should be part of the workup. Unfortunately, some hospitals are stripping nephrologists of the opportunity to review urine sediment. Curious to get your thoughts here, Dr. Beck. What should we do? Sure. Hi, everyone on the podcast. A new voice here. This is Larry Beck from Boston. And yeah, I certainly want to emphasize for those who can, looking at the urine sediment, the reports that at least our hospital gets from the clinical lab are, are very limited. So it's it's very worthwhile for a nephrologist to take the time to examine the urine sediment, look for dysmorphic red cells. A phase contrast is, is excellent for this if you can get it, as well as red cell casts, white cell casts. But as you mentioned, it is becoming more difficult to stay credentialed. I don't know if this is at every institution, but you know, I think we feel that it's it's important for nephrology to have the equipment, to have the training, especially for the fellows, um, and to maintain whatever institutional certification is needed to keep this a routine part of routine care for glomerular diseases. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing like uh, looking at a sample under the microscope to see what's going on. Let's talk about a couple other issues, including counseling patients on avoiding ACE and ARB in the setting of volume depletion. This, of course, is not unique for glomerular disease. Anyone taking ACE or ARB should be aware of this. Also, the commentary discusses the use of calcium channel blockers in glomerular diseases and cautions that calcium channel blockers may worsen proteinuria. Uh, did I state that correctly? Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, uh, I think... Two things there. There's a little bit of controversy on whether ACEs and ARBs should be held in the setting of volume depletion. We, for a while, we were preaching that sick days could occur and uh, you should be holding them. But there is some data showing that once they're held, patients later on or doctors later on are reluctant to re-prescribe them. Uh, and then they may be withholding those life-saving therapies over time. So there's a little bit of controversy on whether we really should be holding it, whether we're uh, doing our patients harm there or not. Calcium channel blockers are a pretty interesting story. Um, the we know independent of their change on glomerular hemodynamics and proteinuria that they can cause edema just because they're arterial dilators compared to, compared to the venous dilation system. And, and we often see a patient who's put on an amlodipine, for example, or an ephedipine, any really arterial dilator, and they come in with edema, it's misdiagnosed as heart failure, and then patients are being diuresed for a reason that they don't need it. But independent of that, amlodipine has been shown to increase proteinuria in the uh, long-term uh, outcome of the ASP trial compared to Ramipril. And so if someone has worsening edema, think about your amlodipine. And if they have worsening proteinuria, then also you may want to think about amlodipine before thinking that their disease is actually more active. So since we're on the topic of proteinuria, when should we anticoagulate to prevent thrombosis in the setting of nephrotic syndrome? And which anticoagulant should we use? Dr. Beck, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so sure. It's a very important topic in nephrotic syndrome. 
because there is this heightened risk of venous thromboembolic disease, especially when the serum albumin gets under 2.9 grams per deciliter. Even though I think more and more people are using the DOAX, like a Pixaban, we discussed that these agents, the non-vitamin K-dependent anticoagulants, can bind albumin and be lost in nephrotic urine. So the pharmacokinetics of these drugs really aren't understood, even though there are a few case series showing that they might be effective and may have less bleeding. So therefore, we, we sort of go with the standard KDGO recommendations that using low molecular weight heparin or warfarin for the prevention of venous thromboembolism is really what we should be doing until we have better studies on the topic. And it sh I should note that, you know, whatever you're using, once the serum albumin, if you treated the disease effectively, gets up consistently into the threes and the nephrotic state is over, you can safely discontinue anticoagulation for prophylaxis at that time. Now, before we really dive into glomerular nephritis and immunosuppression, I'm curious, what is your standard of vaccination regimens for these patients? especially for those that will require steroids and other immunosuppressants? Yeah, co complications of the nephrotic syndrome, we think about, of course, thromboembolism, just as Dr. Beck was saying, but also infections. And so it's important to make sure that our patients are immunized appropriately. We use pneumococcal, influenza, COVID, and uh, shingles, you know, as pretty much a standard. I would say some of my shingles I'll usually do only in the, the appropriate population for those over the age of 50. And if I'm using a complement blockade, such as treatment of, um, you know, complement mediated HUS or something, we also make sure to give the Neisseria vaccine because encapsulated organisms can occur and you don't want a bad meningitis. In my patients that are on above 20 milligrams of prednisone, I'm always prophylaxing against pneumocystis with uh, Bactrim typically is my standard three times a week. And there's controversy on whether you should use pneumocystis prophylaxis with rituxan. But I also use that when I'm giving uh, cyclophosphamide. You know, before we kind of dive into the specific glomerular nephritis, nephritides, I want to point out that patients with glomerular diseases should be offered enrollment in trial or registry. And I want to um, put a word out for the NKF patient network. The NKF patient network offers a secure portal that patients can log onto at any time and easily share their experiences and health data that in turn helps research supporting the entire kidney disease community. Now, if you're interested in learning more about the, the patient network, we actually have an episode on the patient network on the Life of Nephrologist podcast. But getting back to the Padoki commentary regarding the specific glomerular diseases, let's start with an exciting one. Let's start out with IgA. It seems that the guidelines and the commentary really focus on four major points for IgA nephropathy. Number one being that we need to do a kidney biopsy for diagnosis. Number two being the MEST-C score uh, needs to be determined. Next is we need to rule out secondary causes. And finally, the IgA prediction tool can be used, but do not use this to determine or monitor response to therapy. So let's start with the least controversial one here. Can you expand on kidney biopsy in the setting of IgA nephropathy? Yeah, I mean, as opposed to membranous, which we'll get to soon, uh, there's not really a great biomarker for IgA nephropathy, so a biopsy really is necessary. And then once you have that biopsy and that diagnosis, you can calculate the or look at the MEST uh, C score. And that's just M is for mesangial hypercellularity, E is for endocapillary hypercellularity, uh, S is for segmental sclerosis, 
And then the T is for uh, IFTA or tubular interstitial atrophy. Um, and then the C part is the presence of crescents. Uh, you also made a good point, Natasha, that the, the secondary IgA, for secondary causes of IgA should be considered too. And we think about passive accumulation of IgA deposits in liver disease. We think about IgA vasculitis, which is sort of still on the spectrum of IgA, but it's, it's a sort of a separate thing. And we used to be called HSP, where you would have edema and purpura and abdominal pain classically as your presentation. And then uh, lastly, although it's not really in the IgA category, anytime you see IgA-dominant disease, you want to make sure that they don't have an infection-related IgA-dominant uh, glomerular nephritis also. Can we talk about the IgA prediction tool? <laughs> I'm curious, what is that used for? And the commentary states it shouldn't be used to determine or monitor response to therapy. So when do you use this and why? Yeah, thanks for the question. So th this is a great tool and it's available. You can enter all your parameters at qxmd.com. Uh, the calculator's online. It's based on data from the International IgA Nephro uh, Nephropathy Network and a 2019 uh, JAMA internal medicine paper by, by Sean Barber and, and colleagues from this network. And they came up with a risk prediction score, which allows the clinician and for discussion with the patient to estimate at time points up to five years, the risk of either progression to end-stage kidney disease or a 50% decline in EGFR. And basically it uses parameters, and it's important that these are from the time of biopsy. So it looks at EGFR at the time of biopsy, blood pressure, proteinuria, age, race, uh, if the patient's on ACE or ARBs, the MESC score, as well as any uh, immunosuppression to give a, the, you know, this risk factor, you may have like a 30% risk at five years. And I think it's, it's useful for discussing with the patient that this, the disease they have is capable of progressing and allows a better informed decision about the use of, you know, these somewhat toxic immunosuppressive agents that we'll talk about. So I mentioned that these are uh, factors from the time, the parameters from the time of biopsy. There's actually a newer paper out by the group um, that looked into the utility of using these parameters at time points up to sort of two years after the biopsy. And they found this helpful as well. And, and I didn't realize this was out, but when I checked the QXD qxmd.com site, there's actually this calculator is available as well. So I'll need to check that out in the future for use. We'll have to drop that in the comments so our, our listeners can get a, a direct link there. Let's talk a little bit about treatment. You know, IgE nephropathy often treated with immunosuppressions. And uh, now there's strong data to support that SGLT2s should be considered. Um, we have the DAPA-CKD trial that included almost 700 patients without diabetes and the EMPA-CKD trial that included about 800 patients with IgA nephropathy. So question here, when should SGLT2 inhibitors be initiated for IgA nephropathy? And can you use them concomitantly with steroids and other immunosuppressants? Yeah, these are, are certainly the new wonder drugs that should be in the water supplies for everyone, right? <laughs> um, and, and it was fortunate that, you know, maybe unfortunate that IgA nephropathy is the, the most common worldwide GN, but it also means that in these non-diabetic CKD patients, there was an enrichment of this disease. So we, we have these data. In my opinion, SGLT2 inhibitors are used in the supportive therapy initial phase of treatment, along with ACE inhibitors and ARBs. Uh, as well as blood pressure control. I mean, probably we'll start with the, the cheaper ACEs and ARBs and then add on therapy for those patients who 
whose proteinuria basically is still in the danger range for IgA nephropathy, which is over a gram per day. They can also be used if a patient can't receive ACE inhibitors or ARBs, but certainly you can add them on to, to the ACE ARBs. And they should be continued, you know, if, if the need for immunosuppression arises, if you still can't with supportive therapy, including SGLT2 inhibitors, get that protein down under a gram, uh, they certainly be can continued if prednisone is added or other immunosuppressants, probably with increased attention to the, the probability of genitourinary infections. I think the indication for, for use, initially some trials said EGFR greater than 45, now we're commonly using these down to EGFRs or starting them down to EGFRs in the 20 to 25 range. So I think a lot of patients can benefit from these drugs in the supportive therapy phase of treatment of IgA nephropathy. Yeah, they've never been studied without being added on to an ARB first, but that doesn't mean that they won't work. It would be unethical to not have somebody on an ARB or an ACE, and so that study will probably never be uh, done. Certainly, if you have a contraindication to an ACE or ARB, then I would have somebody on a Flozin right away, but I also would add it on too. And, and interestingly, because IgA is so dependent on low levels of proteinuria, there's actually been heightened sensitivity to the degree of proteinuria that we should target. And even the uh, newer guidelines target a proteinuria level of less than 750 milligrams instead of a gram. So we're really trying to narrow it down and tighten it down as much as possible for this disease. Great. Yeah. You know, so speaking about treatment, we should also kind of mention steroids or vidocinide. So when should we initiate these for IgA nephropathy patients? All of our GNs, we think about the supportive care that we just sort of talked about and then, and then immunosuppression and when you would use it. And so um, I think using the proteinuria, or obviously if there's a rapid progression, there would be a different time. Uh, if there's still persistent proteinuria, despite flozins, despite ARBs, good blood pressure control, et cetera, then, then the need for immunosuppression arises in almost all of our GNs. And in IG nephropathy, that has certainly been very controversial. This is probably one of the most controversial areas of GN treatment of all the GNs. And there's, every single GN has its own controversies if you want to read our whole uh, commentary on it. The trials for IG nephropathy, I think there's three major ones that really deserve mentioning. Uh, one, the um, STOP IGA trial, and that was in the New England Journal in 2015. They did a good six-month run-in of ARBs first, and then they, what they did is they took patients who had persistent proteinuria above a gram and less than three grams, and they randomized them to receive immunosuppression or supportive therapy alone. The immunosuppression arm uh, was split up by GFR. So if you had a GFR of 30 to 60, you received steroids, cytoxin, and then maintenance with Imuram. If you were above 60, then you received immunosuppression with steroids alone. And that then was compared to no immunosuppression arm. And what they found uh, at the end of the trial was there was a uh, positive impact of uh, proteinuria, which was one of their primary endpoints, so that it was a successful trial, but it didn't have any consequence for uh, GFR over time. And it didn't have any, in the long-term outcome, the 10-year outcome of the study had no difference in GFR or time to stage renal disease. And so it was really kind of a punch in the stomach for using steroids in IgA nephropathy, so much so that there were thought leaders at the time that said, steroids don't work in IgA nephropathy, you shouldn't be using them. There's two other trials. It was the testing trial and then the testing two trial. And so the testing trial was in JAMA in 2017. And what the investigators did at this was they randomized patients also after a run-in period of ACEs and ARBs. 
And remember, this was also prior to Flozens being in the water. So we didn't have the add-on of Flozens in either of these studies. That's something important to remember for a lot of our current GN guidelines and, and almost all these GNs. But they randomized them to uh, methylprednisolone versus placebo. And what they found after two years is that fewer patients in the methylprednisolone arm reached the primary endpoint of a 40% reduction in GFR or the development of end-stage renal disease. And very interestingly, in the placebo arm, the GFR decline was about almost 7 milliliters per minute per year compared to the immunosuppressive arm where it was about 1.8 milliliters per minute per year. And that doesn't maybe sound like a lot, but that is a huge difference over time in a long progressive disease such as IJ nephropathy. So it was really heralded as a huge success. It lowered proteinuria, it reduced the progression of GFR, but it was halted earlier because there were major amounts of infections and even a higher amount of death in the immunosuppressive arm. So it was thought to be a success, but it was clearly also a failure. It was halted early. And um, so what the investigators did with the testing two trial, which was only published after the KDGO 2021 guidelines. So KDGO doesn't actually comment on this. They wouldn't be able to. So I hesitate to comment on it here because our commentary really should be based on the KDGO guidelines. But it, I can't not mention the successful results of the testing two trial where they did the same study as before, but they added on, they started it with initiation of lesser methylprednisolone and they did pneumocystis prophylaxis for everybody in the immunosuppressive arm. And they had an enormous win. They had a reduction in progression of GFR, they had a reduction in proteinuria, and they did not have the increased infections that were seen earlier in testing one. So the KDGO guidelines say really immunosuppression and prednisone is quite controversial, but after that, the testing too has made it a little bit more formal that prednisone really does have a positive effect for IG nephropathy after conservative therapy. Yeah, that's great. You know, I just love how you walked us through that and really kind of talked about where we were and, you know, where we are now. That's, that's fantastic. I'm curious to hear about butosinide. When is that medication recommended? Yeah, so this is another recently FDA accelerated approved drug. Uh, recently, it was granted this accelerated approval, and it's a targeted release formulation of budesonide. And this is a steroid, it's used you know, in lung disease as well, that doesn't undergo first pass metabolism, and it targets, you know, it's designed to be released in the distal ileum where these mucosal, you know, pyres patches live, and presumably the site of IgA1 production. So this Tarpeo is its name. Uh, it's approved to reduce proteinuria over a nine-month course in adults with primary IgA nephropathy who have a, a risk of rapid disease progression. And this is defined by proteinuria. Uh, the label says over 1.5 grams per day. We don't know. I mean, the, the trial is just based on a proteinuria reduction, which, which occurred. But we don't know if, if this slows kidney function decline, EGFR decline in patients, um, and ongoing studies, I'm sure, will we'll look at this. I do want to point out, you know, for any steroid treatment of IgA nephropathy, that this is a chronic lifeline, lifetime disease, and steroids may be appropriate for flares or episodes that are unresponsive to supportive care, but we can't keep patients on these indefinitely. So I, I think these courses of steroids should be kept as, as short as possible. If you can avoid systemic effects with perhaps a targeted release formulation instead of a systemic formulation, do so. Granted, there were steroid adverse effects uh, with the budesonide trial. 
but you know, it, patients who you have on supportive care and, and are well controlled, I think we can avoid chronic use of steroids in these patients. And I also want to point out, um, you know, a lot of these wasn't a lot of this information wasn't mentioned in KDGO. The KDGO 2021 GN guidelines are a living document. So there are already updates out for public commentary in lupus nephritis, and I think IgA nephropathy is going to come. So not sure how that's going to work in terms of the document, but it will be updated sooner than the nine or 10 year period it took from the 2012 guidelines. Well, I think we've talked a lot about steroids. So let's talk about something that's not a steroid. Are there any times where MMF could be used for IgA nephropathy? Yeah, I think it, it's in the chart of potential immunosuppressants. Uh, it's it's only well studied in a Chinese population. So if you have patients of Chinese ancestry, they used it an average dose of 1.5 grams in conjunction with a reduced steroid schedule, and it was just as effective as full dose steroids uh, in these patients who had evidence of active disease on biopsy. But KDGO doesn't recommend it outside of the Chinese population. So you know it's an option. Um, and it certainly is useful in other glomerular diseases. Great. Well, I think we've talked a lot about IgA nephropathy. So let's move on to, to membranous. You know, this is a glomerular disease where knowledge has expanded over the last decade. I'd say in contrast to IgA nephropathy, where everyone has to have a biopsy for diagnosis, membranous could in some cases be diagnosed without a kidney biopsy. So care to expand there? Sure. And then this is certainly a, a topic, membranous nephropathy, that I could talk about for the rest of the podcast, but I promise I won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's I was surprised to see this as the first practice point in the whole MN chapter. But yeah, in certain cases, a positive serology for anti-PLA2R can be uh, indicative of membranous nephropathy without doing a biopsy. In the studies that were done uh, at the Mayo Clinic that looked at this, Patients who had nephrotic syndrome, who hadn't preserved EGFR, which they defined as greater than 60, and no evidence of any other disease state like lupus or hepatitis infection that might cause a secondary MN, doing the biopsy did not add any more information. So the suggestion is that a positive serology for anti-PLA2R confirms the diagnosis of membranous nephropathy. Those patients who do have the lower EGFR, who may have some secondary associations, those, if you decide to treat or don't have the typical response to treatment, deserve a biopsy. And when, when thinking about what test to use for the testing anti-PLA2R, so there's the ELISA that many people have used that gives ranges down under 20 up to 1,500 or greater, which is great for monitoring changes in, in titer. But in, in some cases, like under 20, uh, 14 to 20 is a borderline positive, and the, the company actually suggests that under 14 is negative. But in these cases where you have a some number under 20, you might want to confirm that with a more sensitive slide test, which is an indirect immunofluorescence test. And if that's negative, then you, you know the patient doesn't have. But if you get, say, a ELISA titer of 13 and the indirect immunofluorescence test is positive, that, that really is a, a positive serology. You know, it would be nice if we had these tests for all of the newer antigens that are coming out you know, anti-NEL1 antibodies, anti-THFC7A, can be present in other forms of, of membranous nephropathy. Unfortunately, one, they're not widely available. We, we hope that soon a panel test may come out that tests for multiple ones at once. 
and we don't know if they're also appropriate for diagnosis. You know, obviously we have more information on the more prevalent anti-PLA2R serologies. Hopefully we'll, we'll know more in the future, but right now we, we don't take, say, an anti-NEL1 seropositivity to officially diagnose membranous without a, a biopsy. Well, you know, we talked about anti-PLA2R quite a bit there. Just curious, can you expand on how can we use this test to help guide the duration of our treatment? Can, can we use this test to, you know, guide us in that realm? Yeah, I think it's very important for monitoring therapies because the changes in serology occur more quickly than, than the clinical proteinuria changes. So they, they certainly can guide therapy because the levels, the trajectory of anti-PLA2R tends to precede and predict the clinical course. So if you follow serial anti-PLA2R levels you know, done several months apart, you can decide if immunosuppression is even needed because if, if the levels are declining on their own, that patient's going into a spontaneous remission. If the level is high or increasing, you probably need to start immunosuppression. You can tell if the immunosuppression is working in that your anti-PLA2R will drop by more than 60%, you know, up to 100% decline. And um, you can decide when you might want to think about discontinuing therapy if the anti-PLA2R is declining and then you have a persistent disappearance of the antibody. So again, I think this is a, a, a quicker method to judge if you need therapy, if you need to change therapy, if your therapy is working, and when you can stop. It really is the perfect biomarker. I mean, it, it, it predicts the disease, diagnoses it, it, it predates proteinuria, it improves before proteinuria improves. I mean, I use this in my practice constantly to determine diagnosis uh, and remission. So let's talk about that. Uh, you say that you use it. What is the time interval in which you should look at this for patients? How often should we be looking at PLA2R and trending them? <laughs> it's, it's a tough topic, right? I mean, yeah. we, 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 haven't, we don't have studies that look at this. And I think many of the studies have looked at three, six, nine month endpoints. Um, it probably depends when the patients are coming to clinics. I think you could, every month is probably too often. Every, you know, somewhere between one and three months will give you a sense, but it's really up to sort of the, the practicing clinician and, and how often the patient can come in. Just curious, and we can totally like exclude this question if it doesn't make any sense, but like say someone does to, so, say someone does go into remission, should we just be monitoring them with you know, urine analyses and making sure that proteinuria isn't developing. Is there a role for checking an anti-PLA2R once someone is in remission? I don't think as a routine test, it's indicated. I think one, it's going to take, even after disappearance of anti-PLA2R, the, the proteinuria will continue to decline and, and maybe you get to a, you don't get the complete remission under 0.3 grams, but they, they level off at like 0.8 or something. You know, I don't think it's necessary to recheck to see if the anti-PLA2R has come back or not if, if you've sort of had a sustained decrease in proteinuria. I, I tend to use it in a patient, you know, comes back, the proteinuria has gone up a little bit or the serum albumin has dropped under the normal range, then I'll recheck another one. And if it's positive, I might want to treat earlier. But as, as for routine monitoring, I, I don't recommend that. All right. Let's move on to treatment. I think we've talked enough about anti-PLA2R for today. So how should we approach treating uh, membranous? 
No, I think we have to go back into history again. Uh, so sorry for all the people that don't want to go back in time and just stay in the present. But you know, initially, God, it was 1992 in the New England Journal was the Ponticelli protocol. You know, that, that was a protocol where patients were man, randomized to steroids alone versus steroids alternating with chlorambucil. And they found out that there was greater remission in those that got chlorambucil. Clarimbusil was never really caught on in, in America, so there's a modified Ponticelli protocol that was used with alternating cyclophosphamide instead of the clarimbusil. And then there's even uh, further modifications where some centers just use th three months straight of cyclophosphamide, which is what our center uses if we're going to use cyclophosphamide for uh, membranous. And then over the years, CNIs became popular. Uh, calcineurin inhibitors is what CNI means, and uh, cyclosporin prograph were the main ones at the time, and those became quite popular because they reduce proteinuria and enhance remission, but the problem with those in any Vargians really, including FSGS and membranous, is that they can put patients in proteinuria, but then you have this um, relapse of their proteinuria once you uh, wean off the cyclosporin. And many of our patients were becoming cyclosporin dependent and even developing sort of chronic CKD, creatinine elevations, and cyclosporin nephrotoxicity over time. So there was a really a big need for other therapies. And also out of Italy came a lot of data on rituxan. Uh, so rituximab was shown in several case cohort series uh, to, to induce remission and membranous uh, too. And so, so the landmark trial, the thing that really just went crazy in membranous for treatment was the mentor trial. And that was New England Journal, I think it was 2019 uh, for Venza and colleagues. And they Reanimized patients who had membranous, again, after conservative uh, care uh, to get either cyclosporin or, or rituxan. And what they found out is that both induced remissions equally. Okay, so uh, rituxan and cyclosporin, I think they got remissions in probably about 70 to 80% of the cases. But when cyclosporin was weaned, not surprisingly, the proteinuria came back and, and rituxan led to a sustained reduction in proteinuria over time. And they've also noticed that rituxan gives also a reduction of the PLA2R titers over time too. So all of those work. So cyclophosphamide works, chlorambucil would work, uh, rituxan works and cyclosporin works. And so for your individual patient, you're gonna kinda wanna figure out which one is best for them. I typically will go to rituxan as my first line for someone that I wanna give immunosuppression to. If their proteinuria is really severe and they're having significant complications of nephrotic syndrome, I might actually add in a CNI to enhance a quicker resolution of their nephrotic syndrome and then keep the rituxan on for maintenance. That hasn't been well studied. Uh, there's no study that looked at that yet. The obvious next study that is ongoing now is which one is better, cyclophosphamide or rituxan, because those are our two real gold standards right now. And uh, we don't have data on that yet, but hopefully coming soon. Let's change foot and we'll, let's talk a little bit about resistant, treatment resistance, membranous GN. So what defines treatment resistance and how do you approach those patients? Yeah, I, I would put it sort of into two categories. There's relapsing membranous and then there's complete resistant membranous. And about 30% of the patients who have a response to rituxan will relapse. Usually what I'm giving for the relapse is rituxan. So if I use cyclophosphamide as my initial induction, I want to avoid a total increased cumulative dose of cyclophosphamide. And so usually my first line for flare would be rituxan. And if they were induced with rituxan and it worked, then I'll give rituxan again, knowing that it will likely work again. So I'm usually typically doing one of those two agents for my relapsing diseases. 
refractory disease to cytoxin or rituxin is fortunately rare, but it's definitely an evidence-free zone. We are, when you're hitting that category and they haven't responded to either rituxin or cyclophosphamide, then, you know, CNIs can be used. Certainly MMF has been trialed. And then you're getting into very rare therapies like Actar or even plasmapheresis or something. And there's just not really that much evidence to support any of those right now. So more to come in that, that realm. Let's move on from membranous to a simpler GN, uh, minimal change disease. Talk to me about the change in guidelines from 2012 when steroids should be tapered. Yeah, I think that, you know, we're really just recognizing that these high-dose steroids over time and people who have already been in remission really may not be as necessary. And, and we're, we're in agreement with, um, with KDGO that after two weeks of remission instead of four weeks is when you can still, when you can begin your uh, prednisone taper. If you have bowel wall edema, you can still use IV steroids, you know, in the beginning to enhance, I think, steroid administration into the blood. The big change and the one that I think we should remember is that we don't need to overpower our patients with a lot of steroid exposure. So let's move on to another GN. Let's talk about FSGS which has really seen a big change in the diagnosis and treatment since the 2012 guideline. Can we go over the four categories of FSGS that the guidelines outlined, which is primary or immunologic, the second one being genetic, third, secondary from viruses, medications, or adaptive, and then lastly, and my favorite, the undetermined cause? Sure. So let me talk about secondary. And when I think about secondary, I've always thought about sort of the, the patient who has a non-nephrotic range of area, less than 3.5 grams per day, minimal edema, probably there was some sort of mismatch of body mass and uh, nephron endowment. So it's really just glomerular hypertrophy and over, overwork and adaptive changes. KDGO lumps also in the you know, secondary to viruses, I guess HIV and COVID, uh, parvovirus, medications, interferons, um, and uh, pimidronate, bisphosphonates, and this adaptive form. So I, I think with the, the viruses and medications and interferon, maybe you're playing into some genetic causes um, like APOL1, which Bill can talk about. But I, th I think the majority of secondary FSGX we see is from this adaptive hyperfiltration put aside damage. And, and those shouldn't be treated with immunosuppression. You, you treat the underlying cause or treat with supportive therapy. Primary disease, we think, is an immunologic circulating permeability factor. These are the ones that have, you know, the fluorid edema, the nephrotic range proteinuria. When you do the biopsy, they have the diffuse podocyte effacement, and these are the ones that get that get treated. But even then, in what appears to be primary, you may have some that don't respond to immunosuppressive treatment. So we need to think about these unrecognized genetic variants. I think, you know, we always think about APOL1, which can cause a focal sclerosis, but also global. Um, but yeah, there's other genetic mutations in type 4 collagen or, you know, podocyte genes that can account for up to 10 to 20% of the, of the cases. And, you know, in contrast to primary FSGS, just like you had said, which does need to be treated, and that's your classic nephrotic syndrome with foot process effacement primary, the treatment's not indicated for them. And, and I can't tell you how many times we will see patients who were labeled with having FSGS, and maybe it was secondary, maybe it was genetic, and uh, it, it really didn't need to be treated, and therefore we wouldn't have to expose our patients to some of the medications that we use for FSGS. Uh, genetic testing 
for the APOL one is actually quite readily available in all commercial labs, like Quest has it, LabCorp has it, a lot of different labs have it, so that's great. But there's also other labs now where you can get a, a full panel of genetic uh, testing that's available. And although not every single gene that causes FSGS is in that panel, it certainly is a much wider net to catch some of the genetic variants that we may be seeing. And hopefully in the future, that will give us a little bit more definition on how these patients present and how they do. Yeah, absolutely. All right, things are going to get a little complicated. Let's move on to MPGN. The Kadoki commentary really emphasized that we should no longer think of this disease as a single disease entity, but instead think of MPGN as a histologic pattern that can be grouped by immunofluorescent findings on kidney biopsy, which provides clues to the etiology. Can you expand there? Yeah, I think you know th this classification system, which is not new to KDGO, um, it was popularized several years ago by by the, the Mayo Clinic group. But MPGN is a, is a very common histological pattern and can now be better classified you know, versus the type 1, 2, and 3 MPGNs according to the presence or absence of immunoglobulin and or complement. So you know, the first class is the immunocomplex, immune complex-mediated diseases, in which case you'll find some immunoglobulin, it doesn't have to be G, it can be A or M, by immunofluorescence, often with the presence of, of complement components. The IgG is, is the key one there, or Ig. Or you can have a complement dominant form, in which case your C3, for example, is two factors of magnitude higher than your Ig. And in this case, when the complement is dominant, you think of dysregulatory problems, it could be genetic causes of complement dysregulation or, or paraproteins or autoantibodies that are causing this complement-mediated GN. And if both Ig and complement are negative by immunofluorescence, now you're thinking of some, something else that's damaged the endothelium, so vascular diseases such as TMAs, sickle cell disease, you know, certain medicines that may, may target the, the endothelium. So it's a very nice way to think about the potential causes. And obviously, the workup will depend, and the ultimate treatment will depend on the specific underlying cause um, once you group them into these three categories. Well, we talked about compliments. So can you clarify the issue of C3GN? The commentary seems to give caution to making this diagnosis without looking for monoclonal gammopathy. Yeah, that's certainly something that I think is underappreciated. And the, the KDGO guidelines recommends looking for paraproteins in those over 50. We think even if you don't have a, a set cause for your uh, C3GN, that you should, even under the age of 50, look for paraproteins. But it, some monoclonal immunoglobulin or fragments can uh, either inhibit dysregulatory or the, the regulatory proteins or activate complement itself, in which case your treatment would be directed at the monoclonal protein, the, the B cell or the plasma cell. If you have a more typical uh, C3 glomerulopathy or GN, you probably should think more about general immunosuppression. Typically, mycophenolate analogs and steroids have been used, or the, the C5 inhibitor eculizumab uh, could be used if, if you have a, a set complement dysregulatory problem. I would just say that to finish up with the C3G is, is that no other GN needs more 
trials than C3GN. And so if you do have a patient with C3GN, see if you can get to your uh, local academic center and get them set up for put in a trial. Because right now there's a lot of different complement blockers specific in the complement cascade that may give us uh, a better idea on how to treat these patients in the future. Okay, so let's roll from uh, MPGN onto ANCA. It seems like the KDGO guideline really emphasizes the need to not delay treatment while waiting for a kidney biopsy. If you have a positive PR3 or MPO, you should start treatment. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I think in an RPGN situation, you want to get your treatment started as soon as possible. You should not withhold steroids for sure. Uh, the other induction therapies that we'll get to, uh, you may want to wait a little bit because there are other secondary causes of uh, vasculitis that you want to think about. Certainly medications uh, are a big one. Uh, hydralazine, we now call hydrancazine. It's so common that it seems to be causing vasculitis. But allopurinol, uh, minocycline, and even some infections, Bartonella, syphilis, have been associated with uh, vasculitis. And, and don't forget about uh, levamisole, which is a, a powder that can be cut with cocaine, uh, and that can give rise to the same clinical situation. You know, another issue that the commentary discusses is that ANCA levels over time should not guide treatment with the regards to relapse. Also, the Cyclops trial was discussed. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I wouldn't ever make a treatment change based on an PO, PR3 or MPO titer, but I certainly do check it uh, because in the right clinical context, it can give you a little bit more information. And sometimes flares uh, are really difficult to determine. Uh, and so that might actually help you guide your clinical decision-making, but it definitely should not be used alone. As far as the Cyclops trial, um, it was a very interesting trial, which, which randomized patients to uh, oral cytoxin versus IB cytoxin. And this was back in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2009. Um, and what they found was that both uh, IB cytoxin and oral cytoxin induced remission equally. And so there's been a lot of controversy over time of uh, not just how much cyclophosphamide you should use, but the route of administration. The long-term outcome of that study, though, when they looked at the patients, they did find that the, those that had uh, IV cytoxin actually had more relapses, and those that got oral cytoxin had less relapses. But instead of fo focusing so much on the route of administration, IV versus oral, I think it has a lot more to do with total cumulative dose. The more dose you give, the less relapses you'll have. The more dose you give, the more likely that you'll have either infections or leukopenia, et cetera. And so there was also a difference in total cumulative dose with the oral in that trial having more total cumulative dose versus IV. There's never been a really good study that said exact IV cumulative dose versus exact oral cumulative dose and which one is more harmful. And so I think that would be an interesting way to answer the question of administration. What about rituximab? When, when is rituximab indicated? Yeah, I, th I think this is uh, fortunately a, a good option we have for the treatment of ankyvasculitis. Certainly is is used a lot now for initial treatment, based on the Rave study and rituximab that showed that rituximab was essentially equivalent to cyclophosphamide for the induction of ankyvasculitis vasculitis. I want to mention that that rituximab had more subjects who had severe kidney disease. And in that trial, um, in the rituximab arm, there was two upfront doses of, of cyclophosphamide, heightening the need to sort of treat aggressive disease possibly with something that works a little quicker than, than B-cell depletion. Rituximab seems to be superior in patients uh, with relapsing disease and or PR3 ANCA. 
So that's, that's induction therapy. And then for maintenance, rituximab has been used. Uh, the choices are basically azathioprine or rituximab. And the main RITSEN trial suggests that rituximab may be more effective over the course of two years than azathioprine. Um, so I think a lot of people are using rituximab. The question is, when do you stop? <laughs> it, it seems that you know a duration up to now, they've looked up to 46 months is effective but may not be necessary because a lot of people do well stopping earlier, maybe at two years. So I think you look at your patient-specific data, You know, how much kidney function can they afford to lose? Maybe you want to continue a little longer. Uh, do they have a form like uh, uh, PR3 ANCA that may be more likely to relapse? So it's, I think it's an ongoing discussion. Um, you can look at titers as well to see if they've completely disappeared. But it's 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 something that we still need to figure out who we can stop rituximab or other maintenance therapies in. How about the advocate trial? And how do you pronounce this? Is this avo? Avacapan, I think. Avacapan. Okay. <laughs> That's how I pronounce it. Uh, others <laughs> may, you know, photocyte, podocyte. Um, um, Avacapan. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think this is a, a very appealing adjunctive therapy, um, which was trialed in anchor-associated vasculitis, and the drug itself blocks the anaphylatoxin C5A binding to its receptor. Uh, and importantly, because it only targets the receptor, you don't interfere with the other byproduct of C5 cleavage, you know, the formation of the C5B39 membrane attack complex. So by using this, there's no specific increased rate of infection due to encapsulated organisms like Neisseria. So in the trial, they compared sort of standard of care induction for ankyvasculitis with rituximab or cyclophosphamide, and then high-dose high steroids that were tapered over 24 weeks. Um, and the experimental arm was the same choice of induction agents, rituximab, cyclophosphamide, plus a lower sort of one-third dose of prednisone that was tapered more quickly over four weeks. And to that was added this avacapan twice daily um, as a steroid-sparing agent. And what they found was that at 26 weeks, that avacapan was non-inferior to the higher-dose steroid taper. And then actually at 52 weeks, when looking at uh, sustained remission, that avacapan was superior. Even though you know the, you're hoping that the serious adverse events would be much lower, uh, they were actually pretty similar in both groups. But you do certainly reduce the overall steroid exposure, and this is a steroid sparing agent. So hopefully, we'll we'll see benefits of the steroid sparing sort of as we learn more about this agent. Beyond 52 weeks, we we don't really know about safety or, or clinical effects. So hopefully, we'll we'll learn that as well. One last question about. <laughs> <laughs> treatment of ankyvasculitis here, but uh, when does KDGO recommend plasma exchange and did the recommendation change for plasma exchange? Yeah, it's certainly become a lot softer. In the prior KDGO guideline, it was based on the MEPEX trial, which showed that in certain patients who had pretty severe renal failure, creatinine above 5.7, there may be a benefit of plasma exchange to uh, keeping patients off dialysis. The long-term outcome of the MEPEX trial, though, was negative and there was no ever mortality difference. The major trial of the PEXAVAS came out in New England Journal in 2020, and these investigators randomized patients with ankyvasculitis to receive plasmapheresis versus not, and essentially at the end of the trial, there was no difference in renal failure uh, outcomes. Two other parts of this trial that were a very big deal was one also that um, 
we've also often thought that if you have alveolar hemorrhage, that's an automatic indication for uh, plasmapheresis. And the patients that had alveolar hemorrhage in the PEXAVAS trial did not do better with plasmapheresis. Now, that being said, there weren't enough patients with severe alveolar hemorrhage requiring dialysis. So there's still a subset that we don't know uh, that may work. But I think that the conclusive data shows that plasmapheresis isn't really needed as much for the renal failure outcome. Uh, if they have dual GBM antibodies with ANCA, then that's almost a definite for plasmapheresis. Um, and then the last part of this trial, which is I just have to mention here, is that the other part of it is that they also used a low-dose prednisone arm. They had a rapid taper in one arm, and after a week, the patients went down to 30 milligrams of prednisone. And the low-dose steroid arm versus the high-dose was, again, no different at the end of the trial, which you can see what these uh, the current KDGO guidelines and our commentary is all about. There's three GNs now we've been talking about, well, with ankyovasculitis with avacapan, with ankyovasculitis with pexavas, with um, minimal change disease, where we're trying to minimize steroid exposure uh, over time because we recognize the harms of it. I think we've talked enough about ankyovasculitis now, but yeah, let's yeah let's move on to lupus. You know, obviously we can't cover every aspect of lupus, but in the commentary you made some some great points. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that there's controversy on when you would biopsy for lupus nephritis, on what level of proteinuria, and in general, uh, it was thought about that or it was thought that less than a gram proteinuria, uh, similar to an IG nephropathy, which you know, may have significance that, there, that there's uh, data to show that severe lupus nephritis lesions can exist with uh, that amount of proteinuria. But there's been several studies that have shown that it can even happen at less than 500 milligrams of proteinuria. So trends in proteinuria, trends in UA findings, uh, all those are, uh, are really important for any lupus patient every time they see the practitioner, whether that's a rheumatologist or a nephrologist. You recommend pretty close follow-up of patients with uh, lupus nephritis. So do you recommend to monitor labs within a particular duration? All of my patients with lupus I see every three months, uh, unless they've been in complete remission for so long, then I will stretch it out. But uh, that's whether that's at, at diagnosis, that's during treatment, because their treatment is so complicated with uh, all the different medicines we have. So in repeating urine at every visit, I think is another very important thing. So I check a urinalysis, I check the serology, we'll check a urine PC ratio at every visit just to really help monitor which direction they're going. Speaking of treatment, the commentary kind of talks about high and low dose cytoxin regimens, but you guys say it, it doesn't really matter. So Dr. Beck. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's a, cyclophosphamide is a very powerful drug. And, you know, some of the first therapies, you know, standard dose, IV cyclophosphamide, the modified NIH protocol, oral therapy, which has a generally higher cumulative dose, works well. It's been studied in all ethnic groups, uh, all levels of disease severity, so, so we know that works. The reduced dose, which is really the Euro lupus studies, because it was European, was largely shown to be effective in whites. So we, we don't have as much data in other populations, but I think the emerging data suggests that the lower dose Euro lupus works well in Blacks, Hispanics, Asians, you know, whoever you're, you're going to use it on. If we're trying to minimize uh, alkylating agents, um, probably low dose would be effective. There might be situations in more severe disease where you'd consider a higher dose. And then in terms of oral, you know, it, we know it's effective, it's cheaper, it may be more convenient. Patients don't have to come in for infusions. Also can be used in, in anyone 
but there is the, the concern for higher degree of toxicity and infections. So I think treatment should be individualized and the lowest cumulative dose using established protocols should be considered. We don't absolutely need to use high dose IV cyclophosphamide for everyone. Moving from cyclophosphamide, moving on from there, I'd like to talk about steroids. So what steroid rec regimen do you recommend uh, when treating class three and four lupus nephritis? So, you know, with these proliferative forms, we know that getting on it early and using pulse steroids, um, you know, granted the, the dose, no, no studies have really looked at the specific dose. I think most people will use 250 or 500 milligrams IV times three over three days. But we know these early anti-inflammatory and immunosuppressive effects really can improve survival. And then the question is, what do you move to? So the, the KDGO guidelines in a table form list three possible regimens, uh, a standard steroid dose, a moderate dose, and a reduced dose, really putting the, the emphasis on this more reduced dose. So instead of one mg per kg, the, this reduced dose is a 0.5 to 0.6 mg per kg with a maximum of 40. So I, I think this is appropriate. However, even lower might be more effective. I think we're getting more information from recent studies with voclosporin and belimumab that you can have a lower dose, a more rapid taper with some of these newer agents. So you know, I think we're still learning, and this is why the uh, the first chapter to be redone in KDGO that's out for public commentary is the lupus nephritis chapter because there wasn't a lot of detail about these the two studies on voclosporin and bulimumab. Um, but in terms of steroid dosing, like all other diseases, as Bill said, we're learning that we don't need to overwhelm the patient <laughs> and cause all sorts of toxicities, and we can, we can use lower doses. I'm sensing a pattern here, uh, less maybe more in certain circumstances, but you did actually earlier mention voclosporin. So when should or could voclosporin be used to treat lupus nephritis? Yeah, great question. Voclosporin is really just a novel calcineurin inhibitor. Uh, in the Aurora 1 trial, which was in the Lancet in 2021, randomized patients to receive voclosporin as add-on to MMF versus MMF alone for induction for patients with lupus nephritis class three, four, or five, and, um, and steroids, of course, too. And what they found wasn't really that surprising is that uh, the, those that were randomized to the CNI arm had a improvement in proteinuria, more rapid uh, improvement in proteinuria. But the issue is with the same issue that I have with any uh, calcineurin inhibitor is that we don't really have data yet on what happens when we taper it. Uh, is the proteinuria gonna be flaring again? Is there gonna be a sustained remission? And so. To me, this is another novel CNI, which does have a role, but it's not necessarily uh, ready for big time yet for long-term treatment of lupus nephritis. Just curious, has there been any changes regarding induction therapy for class three and four lupus? You know, similar to the studies that Larry mentioned about rituxan versus cytoxin with the rave and encovasculitis, the studies of cytoxin versus MMF have really been equivocal in lupus nephritis. We'll often choose MMF as first-line therapy because of our anecdotal experience with the side effects of cytoxin, especially the issues with infertility in most of our patients with lupus nephritis are in the fertile realm of their life. It's a, typically a, a young woman patient who has lupus nephritis. So we do try to avoid cyclophosphamide when we can, but, but you know, 
there's not, it's not really that clear. I mean, there's data on those patients from the long-term outcome of the ALM trials that were induced with MMF actually may have more flares compared to those patients that were induced with, um, with uh, cyclophosphamide. And, and flares and lupus are really not a joke. I mean, they're difficult to diagnose. Uh, they can be difficult to treat. And we know that a patient that has more flares over time has a higher incidence of going on to end-stage renal disease and having a worsening outcome. So we're really hoping that adding on Benlista or possibly Voclosporin to MMF allows us to have sustained remissions over time and also allows us to reduce total steroid cumulative dose as well. Just kind of curious, you know, you, we talked about induction. What's the recommendation for maintenance therapy after induction therapy for class three or four lupus? And how long do we keep a patient on maintenance treatment? Yeah, those are good questions. I think the studies have shown that for most patients, uh, the mycophenolate analogs would be the first choice option for maintenance therapies. Although we mentioned pregnancy, and these are young women who may still want to become pregnant, that azathioprine or calcineurin inhibitors may be possibilities if someone is considering pregnancy, because certainly you don't want them on mycophenolate. In terms of the optimal duration of maintenance therapy, we still don't have great answers, but the KDGO has looked at this, and, and outcomes are generally better if the total time of um, therapy, meaning induction plus maintenance, is greater than 36 months. Um, people tend to, to do fairer, poorer, or have more relapses if you stop earlier than that. If you are considering stopping therapy in a patient, we mentioned that this is a, a sneaky disease and there may be some underlying smoldering disease activity. So you could consider a, a repeat biopsy in that situation just to confirm that things are pretty quiescent. Well, we did not cover everything in your commentary, but I feel like in this podcast, we covered a lot. So uh, you know, I strongly encourage all the listeners to check out the the Kadoki commentary on the KDGO guidelines published in AJKD. It really helps provide context for these guidelines and how we apply them into our very complex healthcare system. You know, thank you so much, Larry and Bill, for your insights. Just before we wrap up here, any other comments or thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience? So I'd like to thank all of the members of our wonderful working group who helped write this commentary. And we, we split up this massive KDGO document by chapters. Uh, so I'd like to thank Isabel Ayub, Don Castor, Michael Choi, Jason Cobb, Duvru Gita, Michelle Rowe, Shika Wadwani, Timothy Yao, and of course, all of the NKF support uh, who helped us pushed us through this, uh, especially Jessica Joseph and everyone else who's, who's made this possible and, and made this podcast possible. And thank you, Natasha, for, for hosting this. Yeah, absolutely. This was a fun, it was like a crash course in GN. Thank you again for being here today. And for our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tag us on Twitter. Our handle is at NKF. And if you'd like to get in touch with us about this episode or have ideas for future ones, please email us at nkfpodcast at kidney.org. Until next time, everyone, take care.